Hello and welcome to another episode of Isn't That Something? I'm Ralph Crew, and today we're going to do another long-form podcast-style episode. I got to interview a brilliant scientist. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. By the way, this is going to be released as an actual audio podcast. Um, if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to that. You can find it anywhere that you find podcasts. It's just isn't that something? Uh, another thing, if you're enjoying the videos that I've been making, please consider supporting me on Patreon. I'll leave a link for that in the description. Uh, support on Patreon is easily the best way to uh, keep me going and, and allow me to continue making the nerdy videos that I've been making so far. Uh, another note about that, uh, my production schedule has sort of changed a little bit. You'll notice a brief hiatus of the ordinary uh, fast-paced, heavily edited videos. Uh, they're coming back. It's just uh, I'm trying to get ahead of schedule on my production. At the moment, I've been producing videos and then publishing them immediately as I'm done editing them. So I'm sort of right on the knife edge of production. That's not a really sustainable way to do things. So I'm taking a little time to write lots of scripts, to film multiple episodes and sort of get a production schedule that's more sustainable and ideally will be more consistent and make for better content. Now, on to my interview with Dr. Scott Edgington of NASA. I am absolutely thrilled today to have a, a conversation with uh, Dr. Scott Edgington, who has been working with NASA and JPL for uh, a, quite a while on some pretty amazing uh, projects. Scott, thanks for coming on and talking to me today. Well, thank you, Ralph. Uh, thank you for the invite. Uh, this is a pleasure to uh, talk to you about the exciting things that, uh, that we're doing at NASA. Yeah, and I mean, of course, NASA has no shortage of exciting things. But before we get into what you're working on now and some of the awesome stuff that you've worked on in the past, um, I just wanted to get some background on who you are, you know, what, how, how you got into this and, and what you're doing uh, now. Well, uh, as a kid, I was really interested in studying astronomy, you know, the stars, black holes, uh, things that kids get kind of get excited about, uh, you know, exploring space, being an astronaut, etc. And, uh, uh, you know, at that time, I was also interested in physics and chemistry and, you know, math and uh, all, all of the above, you know, <laughs> and uh, all the STEM fields uh, that you could think of. And uh, I had some good opportunities in high school to, uh, uh, to explore. Uh, I had a great chemistry teacher and she uh, inspired us. Uh, she appointed me, for example, as, to be one of her lab assistants, which uh, got me you know, going down the track of, oh, I wanna be a chemist. And, uh, <laughs> and so you know, all that fun, uh, those fun experiments that you would do in chemistry class. Oh, yeah. I got, you know, hands-on experience doing those things. Uh, and then physics, you know, started learning physics and, you know, doing all those experiments in high school and uh, just had tons of opportunity uh, for me uh, as a high school student. Uh, but then, you know, you have to choose a college. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, I went through all the lists, the uh, list of colleges that I wanted to go to. And uh, I chose Pitt, uh, the University of Pittsburgh. And, Panthers. Uh, yeah, go Panthers. And, uh, you know, um, uh, and at that time I was thinking, oh, I need to do something practical here. Uh, so I uh, went into an engineering program called engineering physics. And uh, that 
kind of combine my interest in physics with uh, engineering. Uh, you know, try to you know get involved with a, something practical. You know, uh, but at that time it was like more like building bridges. Uh, sure. And uh, which and in so, Pittsburgh really makes sense too. If you've been to Pittsburgh, I know you're you're exactly, from the area, so yes. you know all about those bridges. Mm -hmm. Oh yes, <laughs> and uh, but but I said to myself, you know, I had that calling. Yeah, you know, I want to do something different. Uh, so I actually got involved with this uh, physics professor at the University of Michigan who launched rockets into the atmosphere, and um, uh, he launched from Wallops Island, and uh, these sounding rockets explored uh, the Earth's own atmosphere. And that got me interested in studying uh, the Earth's atmosphere, uh, the upper layers of the atmosphere where you right. see the aurora, for example. Uh, so these sounding rockets, these are more than just model rockets, right? You're going up into the mesosphere. But how, how high up are we talking here? Uh, thermosphere. So you're talking oh, wow. uh, about 100 uh, kilometers. So actually like the edge of space. Yes. Yes, not 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 quite uh, getting into orbit, uh, but yeah, you're reaching those uh, upper layers there where wow. you're sensing the electrons that's coming in from the sun and all that. Uh, it, it's amazing uh, what you could do with you know just launch this rocket up with instruments that can measure things like electrons, uh, protons, uh, ultraviolet light, uh, and you know all that stuff got me so excited uh, as a student you know, at the university. Uh, after that, I decided, you know, I want to study the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, so I looked for programs and uh, ended up at the University of Michigan. And uh, they have a really good uh, atmospheric and space science department. Uh, and during that time, I was studying the atmosphere of the Earth. Uh, but then that little uh, thing in my head that said, you know, I want to study something a little further out. <laughs> uh, you know, it just came back and said, you know, the atmospheres of these other planets are equally as interesting as Earth's. And uh, that got me down, the, going down the path of exploring the outer planets. And uh, I had a professor who I teamed up with, uh, and my thesis work was actually studying the atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn, like the picture behind me. Right, which is such a stunning picture, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But the, mm -hmm. I mean, these are pretty different atmospheres than we see on Earth. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And uh, there's a lot to be learned in uh, their exploration, comparing them to Earth's. You know, how are they different? Uh, you know, what, what's the chemical makeup? How do they work physically? And uh, by studying them, you could bring back a knowledge uh, about the Earth's atmosphere that you wouldn't have if you just studied the Earth's atmosphere. Right. Uh, and so, and the same thing applies to studying the surfaces of other bodies. You know, we're used to living here on this Earth and, uh, you know, we study the Earth's geology, uh, but what about the other geology out there? Mars, mm -hmm. for example, Venus, for example. And so uh, there's a lot of that type of stuff uh, that could be learned. Um, and so back to you know my own history, uh, I, I spent uh, seven years in Michigan. I just loved that place and uh, didn't want to leave <laughs> until my professor said, okay, well, it's time for you to go. <laughs> 
And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, I started looking around and, uh, you know, job options came available. Uh, I could have been an astronomer in uh, Texas at McDonald Observ Observatory, for example. Uh, but then uh, I, I was like, oh, JPL, that sounds like an interesting place to be. And so I uh, applied and uh, got involved with a postdoc uh, program that they have, postdoctoral researcher program. And uh, I came out here to Pasadena, California, and uh, did that for two years and uh, explored uh, uh, Jupiter and Saturn uh, under, you know, under the guidance of a, pro a professor and researcher here at JPL. Uh, JPL is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Right. World famous. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that the kind of nerds that watch this channel probably already know, but even the, the tiny edge cases that don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, JPL, um, look it up. It's, I mean, it's an historic uh, institution. I mean, the, just the stuff. Well, I mean, I'll let you continue telling the story. And, and so uh, it, it was actually just about 19 years ago uh, that I arrived here at JPL to do that type of work right and, uh, and so it's uh just amazing uh you know uh, you know at the end of that two-year period i was saying to myself where do i want to go now and I, I i was like you know this is the place to be yeah you know, i could get involved with missions that go explore all these other outer solar system bodies inner solar system you know even the earth J jpl does a lot of earth science too and so uh, I was like, this is the place I want to be. And uh, so I looked around and got involved with Cassini, uh, which yeah. was my first job. And until about two years ago, it was my only job here uh, at the lab to work for that project. So uh, let, let's pivot over to that, because that is in, in many ways, maybe my favorite unmanned space program ever. And it's certainly one of the most uh, just stunning explorations of outer space um and of of course it is of the gas giant planet saturn um which is you know you could we see that beautiful image behind you can you tell us a bit about what cassini is like how did it get started um and, and how did it get to where it's going well you know just let, let us in on that because it's so it's so cool yes well i mean the 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 seed for cassini came from voyager yeah so uh, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, you had the Voyager missions that went to Jupiter and Saturn and uh, explored those planets. And uh, as those probes were flying by Jupiter and Saturn, uh, you know, all the discoveries from that mission just had the scientists saying, we have to go back to these objects and the and study them in you know in detail and uh you could imagine the voyagers as being a you know snapshot you know you're just flying by you know take your pictures while you can you know, roll down your window take down your picture you know, take your pictures right uh, but that's your last yeah you know, that's what you saw um and so the scientists started to come up with ideas to go back to jupiter and back to saturn and explore those uh, uh, planets in detail. Uh, and so you, from that, you have Galileo uh, exploring Jupiter. Right. Uh, obviously, that arrived at Jupiter first. And, uh, and then you it's have- It's a shorter trip too, to be fair. Yes, it is, <laughs> much shorter trip. <laughs> uh, and, and easier to get to. <laughs> uh, 
Um, with, uh, with Saturn, it's a bit further out. You need gravity assists to help mm -hmm. you along. And so, uh, and, and even Jupiter, you need to fly by Jupiter to get you there. And so uh, you're talking at least twice the, the distance traveled. Uh, and so uh, you need so that. So how long did it take Cassini to get there from Earth? It took seven years to get there. Jeez. And, uh, and so from, from Voyager, uh, and all that excitement in the early 80s, flying by Saturn, uh, that planted the seed that got the scientists talking to the, to the administrators at NASA and saying, we have to go back there. And uh, by the end of the 80s, uh, early 90s, uh, that seed had grown into announcements from NASA and even ESA, the European Space Agency, uh, to go and explore that planet. And uh, there were originally supposed to be two spacecraft built, uh, one to explore Saturn and one to go to a comet. Uh, that was, uh, it was, the program was called Cassini Craft, uh, Craft being the comet part. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, due to budget cuts <laughs> uh, during that time period, uh, they had to trim down, and one of those missions got cut, and uh, Cassini survived, thankfully. And so uh, it's amazing how uh, one day I walked into my advisor's office at Michigan, and uh, I had a meeting scheduled uh, with him, and he said, Scott, I can't meet with you now. I have to talk to my congressperson about Cassini because they've canceled it. <laughs> this is Congress canceling Cassini. Uh. And, oh. and so uh, I, I knew where his priorities lied. And so I basically went off and did my own thing while he uh, did his part to get it reinstated. And uh, a few years later, it's back, uh, you know, on the books. And, um, and you know, so the early starts, uh, as in scientists and engineers gathering, bringing together the project, uh, starting to build the spacecraft, that was all done in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and then uh, launch time comes along in 97. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was like, wow, this thing is being built. It's, uh, you know, on the launch pad, ready to go. And I remember my advisor actually traveling to Florida uh, as I was writing my thesis. And so I couldn't go because I had to write my thesis. And oh, so oh I was, that's got to have oh, been brutal. I could have seen that launch, uh, but oh well, I had to graduate. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> it must have been a nail biter though, uh, mm -hmm. you know, watching this, this, pro this project that's got, you know, years and years of work from uh, so many people, including yourself, and then sitting on top of a rocket. Uh, what's that like? Uh, well, I, I've seen the footage and uh, yeah, it's like, wow, this is, this is a huge device. Uh, it's, uh, I think it was two tons of aluminum basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of that sitting on top of uh, the largest rocket that we had at the time, which was a Titan four, I believe. Yeah. One of the Titans. Uh, yeah. It was uh, just amazing seeing that launch and I wasn't even there. Right. Uh, I saw the footage on NASA TV and uh, just uh, amazing to see it. And I could have 
only imagine what it would have been like to be there to hear the roar of the engines mm-hmm. you know going off uh and many of the colleagues that i ended up working with later uh you know were at that launch mm-hmm. and uh they you know, had fond memories of seeing being there seeing uh all of their efforts come to fruition uh as as it got off the ground yeah, yeah. uh so um and then uh it took seven years to get there so yeah. and then you wait yeah. for seven years and that and it's not like it's going slow right you know, like these how fast do you think cassini was i mean i'm sure it's of course the well. speed changes as it slings by jupiter and things like that but we're mm-hmm. talking you know not hundreds of miles an hour and not even thousands but tens of thousands of miles an hour right Yes, uh, I, I don't know the exact speeds, you know, uh, uh, in my head here, uh, but uh, it, they were definitely extremely fast. Uh, we were going so fast uh, that uh, as we approached Saturn, um, you have to slow down. Yeah. Otherwise, if you don't slow down, you're going to just go flying by just like the Voyagers did. Yeah. So uh, that requires engines to fire and in order to slow yourself down. Wow. And the, I remember the engine burn uh, being a 90-minute burn. Wow. And yes, 90 minutes. And a lot of that was in eclipse. And so as you're coming in to Saturn, uh, you're, I mean, in the, if you look at the picture behind me, uh, you're coming in from uh, the direction that you're looking in. And uh, you have to swing behind the planet, which is where my head is uh, here, mm-hmm. and uh, burn those engines. And during that time, you have radio silence. And so you don't know what's happening in that 90 Ooh. minutes uh, until it comes out of eclipse. And uh, all of a sudden, you get that signal and everyone cheers. Right. And uh, just amazing day. Uh, that was in um, uh, 2004. And I remember that day fondly because I was actually one of those chosen to be on stage to uh, MC the show to oh, cool. friends and family. And, uh, you know, it was me and several others uh, involved with this. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're talking uh, in the audience were literally thousands of scientists and their family members uh, who were there gathered for that day. Uh, waiting <laughs> that 90 minutes uh, for, you know, yay or nay, you know, are we yeah. in orbit? And uh, that was just amazing. Um, and when we uh, got confirmation, you know, this huge cheer went up in the auditorium and it was just, uh, I mean, it was a tearjerker there at that yeah. time. It was like, wow, we're there. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that is a historic achievement. Uh, you know, that team sent, sent this incredible instrument to, to Saturn and it got there, you know, mm-hmm. it's one thing to talk yeah. about sending a rocket to Saturn, but actually pulling it off is, is pretty remarkable. I mean, mm-hmm. Saturn, what it's like a billion miles or so. I don't, I, mm-hmm. it's many, it's very far, very, very far, yes. twice as far as Jupiter. Uh, once it's there, what does, so, uh, you know, Cassini settles into its spot. What, what kind of science is it doing? And I see on, on your shirt, it says Cassini Huygens. What's, yeah. what's the deal with the Huygens side of things? Uh, well, uh, one of the ways that we uh, were successful in selling the mission was that uh, we could actually split the cost between us and European Space Agency. And so uh, at the time, 
the uh, administrators at NASA and ESA got together and uh, formulated a mission and said, hey, you know, uh, we at ESA want to go to Titan. We want to land this probe on the surface of this moon. Uh, it's very Earth-like moon. It has a lot of nitrogen and uh, similar chemicals, uh, you know, hydrocarbons, uh, um, things that you would find in the Earth's atmosphere. And it's just colder, you know? Like a lot colder though, right? A lot colder, yes. <laughs> but, but imagine if you warmed up that atmosphere, it might actually look like Earth's atmosphere. Wow. And so, uh, so basically the Europeans wanted to go and explore that atmosphere and the surface of Titan. Uh, to the naked eye, the Titan's this uh, hazy ball of gas and uh, you, very smoggy. And uh, imagine a smoggy day in Pittsburgh or Los Angeles, now that yeah. I'm here in Los Angeles, uh, it's, you can't see the surface. And so you have to send something in in order to sample it and see what that surface is like. And so the Huygens probe was designed to do that. And they uh, attached the probe to Cassini and uh, it was literally uh, piggybacking its ride uh, to, uh, to the Saturn system. Uh, once we were in the Saturn system, we released the probe, and it was about six months after uh, the uh, orbit insertion that uh, we released the probe. Um, around Christmas time, it's, in fact, we released it. Uh, in fact, there's so many things. You know, orbital dynamics does not care about Christmas. No. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot of things that... Uh, where orbital dynamics would say, oh, you have this key maneuver to do on that day, and uh, you have to be there working on that day. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we have so many instances on Cassini where that's been the case. Uh, anyways, I digress. Uh, uh, so uh, about a month, uh, not quite a month later, uh, we land on the surface of Titan. And so uh, that uh, the probe entered uh, the atmosphere. It actually uh, was on a parachute. So uh, it actually took some time to get to the surface, a few hours. And um, you know, along the way, it's just measuring the winds, measuring the particles in the atmosphere, the, chemi uh, the chemistry uh, of the atmosphere. Uh, and then eventually comes to land on the surface. And uh, it just so happened to land in what's what you would call a drive riverbed here at, you know, in, in this desert, desert southwest. Um, you know, just uh, no liquid, but you could tell it was a, a region where water had flowed, or, or liquid, I should say. Right. Uh, because water is frozen on the surface of Titan, uh, which should have the viewer asking the question, well, what flows on Titan? <laughs> and it just so happens if you pull out your chemistry tables, uh, it, th those chemistry tables will tell you methane is the yeah. liquid that could flow on that surface. And so uh, you're talking about an environment of flowing methane rivers. It's amazing. Like you think about you know, like you can go spend some time on, on, on a riverbank or uh, even a beach here on Earth and you could do the same thing on Titan, except for it would be methane. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and the ice that you're familiar with is rock. Yeah. 
and then it's just like hard. I mean, just, I mean, it, it's not going to melt. <laughs> right. Uh, it did melt briefly though, when we did land, because the probe was hot enough to reach temperatures that allowed water uh, molecules to, you know, come out into the atmosphere really? for, for a short period of time. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> and we have, you know, uh, the mass spectrometer measured mo uh, molecules in the atmosphere that would not be present if it wasn't a warm body sitting on melting ice. <laughs> so, yeah, really exciting. That, I mean, that's a stunning thing. And Titan in general is one of the most interesting places in the solar system. And later on, I definitely want to come back to it because there are more plans I know that NASA has in store for Titan. Um, but uh, there are other, other moons of Saturn that I want to talk about while we have time. And of course, you know where I'm going with this. I see you smiling. Uh, of course, I want to talk about Enceladus uh, and the work Cassini did with, with that moon. So can you tell us what Enceladus is all about and how Cassini studied it? Okay. Uh, well, going back to the Voyager days, uh, we scientists at the time uh, had evidence that this was an interesting body. Um, we didn't quite know exactly why, uh, but it had a really bright surface, uh, meaning that it wasn't uh, contaminated by, uh, say, meteorites hitting the surface, which causes uh, these surfaces to look dirty and old. Mm -hmm. uh, it had a lot of fresh surface ice uh, on, on, the surf on that surface. Um, it also was sitting in a region called the E-ring. And if you see the bright uh, blue outer large ring here, mm -hmm. that's the E-ring. And uh, the E-ring is composed of uh, tiny little ice grains. Uh, so, you know, just tiny little ice particles floating around, uh, you know, micron size. Uh, you could actually only see it at extreme angles like this where the sun is behind you. Uh, kind of like uh, if you're driving uh, with your the sun in front of you and you see your windshield get if it's dirty it get <laughs> all bright uh yeah. this i call this effect the dirty windshield effect <laughs> and that's really what it is uh, <laughs> and so uh you know uh, with with your own eyes um you really can't see it when the sun is behind you uh, but you could see it when it's in front of you and so uh, uh that's how tiny these particles are and so Enceladus, we knew that there was some connection there between Enceladus, which is sitting in the heart of this ring, and uh, the ring itself. And so uh, fast forward to Cassini, uh, as uh, during one of our flybys of Enceladus, uh, and we had many flybys of, of the moons of, in this system, uh, many of which involved Titan, et cetera. Uh, but we had a few early on designated to go by this tiny little moon called Enceladus. And as we were flying by it, we detected a deviation in the magnetic field. And that magnetic field deviation got scientists to think something's happening here to cause that effect. And we want to explore that further. And so you can imagine, you know, when scientists discover something like this, they're like, okay, what could we do to the mission, you know, to get us closer? We want to view that surface. We want to measure things with our mag magnetometer, our mass spectrometers on board. We want to look at this in detail. 
And of course the engineers are like, Oh boy, you know, how are we going to get closer? Um, you know, is it dangerous? Uh, uh, you know, all these things go through the engineer's head heads, uh, and, you know, trying to figure out how to do this and to do it safely. You don't want to fly into the object. <laughs> and so, uh, is there an orbit that will take you close enough such that they feel comfortable? And so that, uh, there was this huge effort to get us closer to this tiny little moon. And when we did that, we, um, uh, we took images in that second flyby. We you know, trained our instruments, tuned them to uh, whatever we thought we, we should be measuring uh, or could be measuring. And uh, sure enough, we flew through one of the plumes uh, of Enceladus. And uh, that was just exciting. It's like, wow, there's a geyser here. Uh, this tiny little moon out of its surface, there's cracks in the surface and out of that, those cracks are coming these ice particles, you know, uh, uh, maybe it was liquid underneath and these ice, you know, it's coming out, it's freezing really quick and becoming ice particles. And we're sensing that as we fly right through. And uh, of course uh, the whole, after the prime mission, uh, uh, with Cassini, uh, which was four years, by the way, uh, they actually designed a series of orbits that would study this moon in detail. And uh, of course, several of them was were designed to fly through that plume several more times. And uh, each time we learned something different, uh, we uh, got better at what we were doing, you know, tuning our instruments, um, you know, making sure that we were measuring the right thing and in the right way. And uh, uh, the chemistry of these, this material coming out, uh, we were seeing salts, we were seeing um, uh, ammonia, we were seeing uh, methane, uh, all, uh, CO2, uh, carbon dioxide, uh, just all these uh, materials coming out of this moon. And you wouldn't expect this. I mean, you would expect to see maybe a ball of ice with, right. with some cracks. Uh, but here it is, an active moon. So what does that tell us about what's going on underneath the ice at Enceladus? So one of the most exciting results from these flybys uh, is the measurement of silica uh, as we flew through the plume. And silica is one of these, uh, it's basically grains of sand on a beach. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we are familiar with uh, as we walk through sand on the beach uh, here in you know, Southern California. Uh, and so um, uh, it's like, how is this material there? And the, imagine you have this moon, uh, you have maybe a rocky interior, uh, you have maybe a liquid ocean underneath, uh, and you have this icy shell with cracks. And so that silica grain has to travel from this rocky core into outer space. And something's putting a bit of oomph behind the silica, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and so something has to form it. And that's when we learn that there is actually a liquid water ocean tied together with um, this uh, rocky core. And you could think of a percolator where you have some circulation going on between that ocean and that core. And it's uh, generating these silica grains. Um, and then the cracks in the surface, you can imagine that as a pressure cooker situation where you have a lot of 
heat and pressure underneath. And uh, that has to be released somewhere. And it goes through the weakest points, the cracks. And so those cracks open up, geysers come out, and we measure it. Wow. It's free samples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you like the, the fact that Cassini actually flew through that material. Oh, just that that's stunning stuff. And of course, that means that Enceladus is is then one of the most exciting places to explore in the future for, you know, possible signs of life, right? I mean, oh, yeah. when, we, when we talk about life on other worlds, we look for water and some sort of energy source. And it sounds like Enceladus has lots of both. Yes. Uh, if you think of a triangle, uh, you mentioned two parts of the triangle, water, liquid water, uh, liquid. There's a lot of ice out there, right. <laughs> a lot of gas out there, but liquid water is special. Uh, you know, it, you know, you, you have that small temperature range that you're looking for there. Uh, and then energy, you know, you need an energy source. So, you know, life needs, requires energy, whether it's sunlight or heat energy. And uh, here's this moon having two of them. The next thing is the chemistry. Right. You, you have the chemistry. Do you have the carbon? Do you have the nitrogen? Do you have the oxygen that need to come together mm -hmm. to form amino acids? Uh, maybe DNA, maybe, you know, amoebas, uh, yeah. maybe whales under the surface. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I'm uh, sure there are Star Trek fans that would flip out if there were whales. Yes. <laughs> I would love it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, we're very interested in, in exploring this tiny little moon. Uh, one of the paradigm shifts from Cassini was the fact that these tiny little moons uh, could harbor liquid oceans underneath their icy shells right. and be places where we could look for life. Uh, it used to be that you thought of the Goldilocks zone as the, you know, that magic zone between Venus and Mars. Earth just happens to be right in the middle, and uh, that's where life exists. But with Cassini and the discoveries that we made with Cassini, uh, it's opened up a new place to explore. Right. And, um, and similar with Europa uh, orbiting uh, Jupiter. Uh, there's a lot of interest in going to that moon, which also has interesting features on the surface. Uh, and, and, and we know a liquid ocean, uh, not confirmed yet, but, uh, we hope to confirm that, uh, with the Europa Clipper mission, for example. Right. So, uh, just amazing world out there, just a billion miles away. Just, just a short billion mile jog down the street. Uh, <laughs> Now, uh, if you're going to talk about exploring Saturn, you can't not talk about the rings. Can you tell us a little bit about what Cassini saw? I don't know if you can maybe even show us some images of uh, what Cassini saw of the rings and how they work and some of the way that the, the moons within them stabilize them. I, I've heard you talk about this before, and I just um, it, it, I get giddy when I, when, I, when I hear it. So just let, let us know what's up with the rings of Saturn. Yeah, I, I could send you some images uh, and movies of uh, what you're talking about. Uh, uh, right now I'll describe uh, using the image behind me. Uh, so the, the rings of Saturn are predominantly water ice, 99% uh, water ice, uh, with some contaminants. So imagine them as ice cubes floating around or icebergs floating around uh, Saturn in its gravity field. And so uh, you have this complex interaction of a range of particle sizes. Uh, 
uh, from small to large. Uh, you know, and so all these particles are coming together, forming structures, uh, maybe crashing together, you know, making smaller pieces. Uh, we have some evidence that the moons within the, uh, the rings are uh, uh, coalescing materials and becoming bigger over time. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a slow process, but it's happening over time. We've seen evidence that these tiny little ring moons that orbit within um, probably started as a tiny little particle, you know, maybe an iceberg size thing uh, that just started gravitationally pulling in more material uh, and, and all that material starts sticking together, forming a moon. Uh, over time and uh, it's, it's snowballing and actually made out of yes. almost made of snow <laughs> <laughs> exactly and so uh, and, and all of these uh, moons they get if they get big enough they're going to create gravitational signatures and so a lot of the structures that you see within the rings are influenced by one the moons within them uh, creating gaps uh, causing some flow of material as the gravity of these moons interact with other particles. Uh, and also the other moons outside of the rings, like Titan, Rhea, uh, um, you know, other, jeez, uh, um, I'm spacing on, <laughs> there's so many moons. Uh, there are. How many moons do you uh, know? Tethys, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, jeez, uh, more than 64 last time I counted. Yeah. And uh, I know it's, it's one of those numbers that, you know, you can learn, but uh, don't don't worry about remembering it forever because it's changing, right? We keep finding more and more moons around Saturn. Yes. The question comes up, what defines a moon? And right. so, you know, some moons we envision as being large like our own, uh, but other moons could be as small as a few kilometers. Right. And so, you know, what defines a moon? And, uh, and so uh, we're discovering these building blocks of larger systems all the time within uh, Jupiter and Saturn's system. Uh, anyways, back to the Saturn's rings, uh, you have all these complex gravitational interactions uh, which cause waves to form in the rings. And these waves, if you look at them at the, you know, on the surface, they kind of look like a record, uh, LP record, uh, with all the grooves uh, and spirals around uh, Saturn. And so all those waves or spirals are caused by the gravitational interaction with other moons in the system. And it's amazing, you know, mathematically, you can map out uh, this moon causes that wave. Wow. And uh, I mean, it's just amazing how scientists can piece together that, you know, here's the source of that wave that you're seeing oh, way over here. Uh, you know, gravity, it works. And so um, at the same time, uh, we're seeing structures within the rings, uh, waves that can't be explained by the, by the other moons. And when you ask yourself, where is this coming from? Well, you have that big ball of gas in the middle. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as things flow within it, uh, you get uh, non-uniform motions. And that causes gravity differences and those gravity differences are reflected in the signal that you see in the rings so, so you can learn about what's going on in the interior of saturn by looking at the rings correct yes wow. we're, 
you could think of the rings as a seismometer. Wow. That's pretty <laughs> spectacular. So what about that big ball of gas in the middle? What, what, what have we learned about that? Well, uh, the, I, this kind of ties in with the end of mission. Uh, at the end of the mission, uh, we were interested in getting closer and closer to Saturn. And uh, one of the goals was to measure its gravitational field and its uh, magnetic field and learn something about what's going on inside of it. Uh, you know, is it a solid core? Is it a liquid core? Is it, or somewhere in between? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it could be any, any, your imagination could run wild with a lack of data. <laughs> uh, and so uh, what we wanted was the data. <laughs> right. So, you know, let's pin down you know, what's happening inside. And so uh, um, uh, we designed a set of orbits at the end of the mission that got us really close. In fact, so close that we went through the gap between Saturn and the rings. That, uh, that, that still stresses me out that you guys actually did that. That's like threading the needle. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. um, I mean, how did you know that was even possible? How, couldn't there have been big chunks of stuff in that gap? Like, how do we know it was even oh, yeah. empty? <laughs> so uh, there's certain lines of evidence that you have. Um, and uh, since you have a spacecraft with cameras, for example, oh, yes. uh, that you could use images of that region to place limits on, mm -hmm. on the size of materials in that gap and also the uh, density of materials in that gap. And so uh, you have that as evidence. You also have magnetic field effects um uh for example you could measure the radiation belts around the planet and you could infer that well it has to be relatively clear um now that's not saying that there's that one chunk of ice that's right. there <laughs> that you're gonna fly into and once you fly into that your mission is over <laughs> um, <laughs> because you're going so fast and momentum is mass times velocity right. and so even a small chunk of mass uh, going at those velocities will tear through your spacecraft and so the engineers were really sweating bullets about this you know they imagine like, oh this is you know not possible you know we need to study this and uh, determine you know what's the probability of us hitting something on the way through and so uh, the engineers uh, they did those studies uh, at the same time, you have the engineers saying, you know, well, is this possible to begin with? And this is where um, uh, the NASA navigators uh, who fly these missions, they're really good at uh, determining where spacecraft could fly. Uh, and so they determined that they, um, there was a set of orbits that they could use to put us on a trajectory to take us through this gap and uh, literally thread the needle, as you uh, put it. And, uh, and uh, we determined that it was possible. Um, it, it was also a joint study with Purdue University uh, where uh, the students there in their uh, navigation program, uh, orbital dynamics program, uh, they took part in this study. So this is what was a uh, time when we could partner up with students actually. That's, that these must have been so studies. thrilling for those students to be part of something like this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, they, uh, and they got several papers out on it. And uh, I mean, you get 
some recognition there. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the people at JPL, they're like, okay, well, let's look at this in a little more detail to make sure, uh, you know, kind of polish the cannonball and see what we could get out of it. Uh, and so uh, we determined that we could do it. And as one of our proposed end of mission scenarios, we said, okay, well, we have to d dispose of the spacecraft. And this is a way we would like to do it. Uh, another idea for disposing the spacecraft was, well, let's just toss it out of the Saturn system uh, or put it in orbit, you know, that where it would orbit for like 500 years. Uh, but Saturn would be this small speck in the center. Uh, and it's like, where's the fun in that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it's decided this is what we should be doing with this spacecraft, maximize its science in the Saturn system. And so uh, we set it on the course for this end of mission. Uh, and we flew the, through this gap, oh boy, 20, over 20 times. Uh, just wow. amazing that, you know, and, and the first time around and the second time around and the third time around and, you know, up until the last moment, uh, we were still sweating bullets. Can we do this safely? Uh, and uh, once we did the first time, people calmed down a bit and said, okay, we did it. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, we actually threaded that needle and now let's do it more. <laughs> wow. And so, uh, we, uh, designed that set of orbits that, uh, eventually took us into Saturn's atmosphere. Uh, but along the way, we measured the gravity. We measured the magnetic field in detail. Uh, we uh, measured the magnetic, the uh, particles surrounding uh, uh, the planet, uh, the ring particles falling into the planet. And imagine some of those uh, ring particles just like raining down on wow. the atmosphere. Uh, we actually measured those um, uh, during these orbits. It's just amazing. Uh, of course, those studying the rings were like, hey, we have to look at these rings in detail. Yeah. And so. Uh, you know, we want to, you know, look at, you know, how close can we get, you know, can we see an individual ring particle? Uh, that was the hope. Uh, but we, with our resolution, unfortunately, we couldn't, uh, you know, we would need a much higher resolution camera in order to see an individual ring particle. But we could still see structures. Um, you know, how did these particles line up to form larger structures? And so uh, we did see that and uh, just amazing. Uh, some of the most beautiful images of the mission, I think, came from that part of the mission uh, as we got up close and personal to those rings. Um, and ev even the planet itself, you have the planet in the middle there. Uh, you're measuring the gravity, which is telling you something about the interior. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big questions was, well, the, wing, the winds that you measure at the surface, how deep do they go? Right. Uh, and with the gravity measurements, we've determined they go quite deep, about a thousand kilometers uh, deep into uh, into the planet. And uh, and that's just from gravity, gravitational measurements. Wow. It's amazing that we could determine that. Um, and then uh, one of the most interesting and perplexing uh, discoveries uh, was that the magnetic field of Saturn is almost perfectly aligned with its rotational axis. And if you ask a person who studies uh, magnetic dynamos, 
they will tell you that this is impossible. It breaks some law of physics that you have this happening. Uh, if you look at Jupiter, if you look at Uranus, Neptune, all those magnetic fields are not aligned with the spin axis. Right. Even our own on Earth isn't Correct. aligned. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what is going on to allow this to happen? And uh, so that is a mystery to this day uh, that, you know, as to why that's happening. There's some hypotheses out there uh, trying to explain it. Uh, but we haven't really stumbled upon the, you know, most convincing reason uh, wow. for it. Uh, but it could be something happening inside. Maybe there's a phase transition where uh, you have uh, metallic hydrogen forming somewhere, mm -hmm. and um, that is somehow influencing what you see outside of it. Mm -hmm. um, it, it could be that inside, maybe it is tilted. Uh, we're just seeing the outer surface of it. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's, you know, one hypothesis, uh, there's probably a few others that, uh, um, you know, someone, uh, that plasma physicists are studying, uh, to try to explain this. And so, uh, and then, you know, it's like, what could you learn from this, you know, uh, in terms of constraints you could place on the structure of Saturn? Um, you know, is it rocky inside? Is it slushy? It might be slushy. Who knows? Uh, it's a big slushy. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, could be a liquid. Is there a liquid layer? It's anyone's guess. Uh, but uh, who knows what happens at those extreme temperatures and pressures? Um, and then you, with those results, you compare those with Juno. Uh, yeah. Juno is, you know, coming back with some amazing uh, knowledge about Jupiter's interior. And so you could basically compare the two and say, how do these, how are they alike and how, they, how are they different? And uh, uh, that's just exciting to me. <laughs> no, it's, I, it, I don't understand how it couldn't be exciting to everybody. It, it's, it's really remarkable stuff. Um, and Cassini, I'll make sure to include lots of links to, to, to further um, you know, pieces of media that people can explore and get, get, dig into the data um, I really can't recommend exploring Cassini enough. It's one of the, if not the most beautiful and certainly compelling uh, scientific programs I've ever seen. Uh, but after such a glorious start to your career, you, uh, you, you came down to, to Mars. <laughs> um, so you didn't come all the way back down to Earth, but you did, you did uh, move on to working uh, a little closer to home. And now you're working on the Mars insight program can you tell uh tell us a bit about that well uh my journey <laughs> uh took me from uh the operations world on cassini uh with a, a short stint of science management in in there uh, uh i was actually the deputy project scientist of the mission and uh for oh about five years and so um and then after that you have the mission ending and that uh, end of mission came by, and uh, that was definitely very emotional. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's like, okay, the mission's done. And yeah. uh, have to move on to the next world out there. And uh, for a while, I was like, okay, I think I'm just going to focus on my own research, uh, which is atmospheres of the planets. Uh, so I did a little of that uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, and then it was like, okay, I think I'm ready to venture 
you know, to a different world. And uh, an opportunity came up with the Insight mission and uh, they needed uh, basically people to do their science planning. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that takes me back to the operation world where I started on Cassini. And so uh, it's like, okay, I could do this job. Uh, it's just that it's a much faster pace. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, with Cassini, uh, to put it in perspective, we are um, designing sequences, uh, basically programs that operate the spacecraft uh, on a monthly basis. And so we have one chunk of time. We're doing uh, uh, science observations for that month. Mm -hmm. Well, on Mars, you're it's much quicker. Uh, we're designing things for a week at a time or mm -hmm. less. And so there's some days where it's like, okay, you start your day, uh, you start planning. And by the end of the day, you have something that's going to the spacecraft. And uh, that's a very fast pace compared yeah. to the leisurely pace that we had on Cassini. Um, now that said, there was a lot of work to be done during that leisure time. Uh, but, uh, you know, same amount of work, just really compressed for Mars. Uh, and so, um, uh, so on Insight, uh, Insight is a mission uh, that is designed to sit on the surface of Mars. Uh, it, is, uh, it has a seismometer and it has a heat probe uh, that is designed to bury itself into the surface. And so uh, these are the uh, two instruments that are used to study the interior of, of Mars. Um, so we're interested in knowing what goes on underneath. And when you have something sitting on the surface, uh, well, you want something to measure how much is Mars shaking. Mm -hmm. uh, that tells you something about what's happening inside. Here on Earth, we have earthquakes all the time. And uh, we learn something about the Earth's interior with every additional earthquake. Uh, you know, that tells us something about how rock is moving around inside, how magma, liquid uh, magma, lava is flowing inside of the Earth. And the question is, you know, how similar is Mars to that, mm -hmm. or our experience here on Earth? And so, uh, you know, this seismometer it's designed to provide those answers. Um, so it's a single seismometer. It's sitting there, it's measuring all these quakes. And we've measured well over 300 some quakes uh, since we've been sitting on the surface for going on 700 days now. Wow. Uh, in two days it will be 700. And uh, so we've measured earthquakes uh, almost on a daily basis. Um, and we've measured about 10 of them uh, in the three to 4.0 range on the Richter scale. Um, we're still waiting for that big one uh, that will uh, help us to probe very deep into the interior. Um, you could think of uh, earthquakes as um, uh, like a bell. Whenever something moves inside the planet, uh, it causes the bell to vibrate. And the surface of Mars, in this case, is that bell and we're sitting on that bell. And, uh, and so every motion we can measure with this uh, seismometer. Uh, in addition to that, we have this heat probe, 
which is literally designed to drill itself into the surface. It's more like hammering itself into mm -hmm. the surface. Um, and that is designed to get deep enough, about five meters, uh, into the surface so that you reach the area that is not influenced by the sunlight. Mm -hmm. um, you can imagine if you have a surface heated by the sun, uh, that surface is going to uh, get hot, it's going to get cold, depending on whether it's day or night. Right. Uh, so you want to be below that effect. Sort of like how here on Earth, if you're in a cave, it's always the same temperature all the time. Exactly. Yes. And so you want to know what's the heat coming from the you know, lower le levels of that surface. And so uh, this probe will uh, basically provide a temperature a thermometer, a series of thermometers that will tell us how this heat flow is coming out of the interior of Mars. Uh, and then um, uh, we'll also learn something about the uh, soil properties of Mars as we you know, bury ourselves into the surface. <laughs> Literally bury. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. when it comes to Mars, I feel like this is always one that's interesting. Um, something about the outer planets, they're so enormous and epic. Like, of course, we need to send things there. But like, why send stuff to Mars? Like, why is it, I, I, I do believe it's very important to send things to study Mars, but wh why do you think it's worth it to send missions like InSight and some of the other missions that are coming up to Mars to uh, check it out? Mm -hmm. Well, Mars has always been fascinating to uh, us humans. Uh, as far as I, you know, the, I think the earliest science fiction novels that you could uh, imagine uh, that we know have been written, uh, it, you know, have Mars somehow associated with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, H.G. Wells, you know, being most famous. Uh, so we're always looking out and exploring and wondering what's out there. And here's this planet that has a surface. You could kind of see it in a telescope with, you know, that you could buy, you know, here uh, mm -hmm. these days. Uh, you could image it uh, with... Uh, with uh, a good camera. And um, uh, of course, if you have a better telescope, you could see the actual surface. Uh, and so there's ice caps, there's uh, places where we think water has flow flowed before. Uh, and there's also questions about, okay, well, if Mars is like this and Earth is like this, how did Mars get to be the way it got to be? And how did Earth you know, evolve in comparison? And then tossing Venus there, you know, it's like, well, there's yes. Venus on the other side. How did it get to its present state? Uh, did these planets start out the same or were they different to begin with? Um, you know, what influenced their evolution, uh, both atmosphere and surface? And so I think Mars is an interesting example where we look out and we see something that is very similar to what the Earth's surface might look like you know, maybe in the desert Southwest or something. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then the polar caps, it's like, well, there's ice caps there. What makes up that polar cap? Is it water? Is it CO2? Uh, we know this, you know, most of the atmosphere is CO2. Uh, and so we're interested in exploring those regions. Um, and then there's always the desire to, you know, what's the ne next place to visit other than the moon? 
uh, and Mars is one of those places that is relatively accessible. Um, <laughs> relatively, yeah. yeah. It's still millions <laughs> of kilometers out there. Yes. Uh, Venus, on the other hand, well, yeah, we could assess it, access it, but uh, it's um, covered by this really thick poisonous atmosphere. Uh, yeah, so, that does make it a little harder. Yes, right. And so uh, Mars has that attraction. And, uh, and, uh, and when you ask the question, well, if water f originally flowed on the surface, where is that water now? Right. Well, is it below the ground? Is it uh, evaporated from that surface? Um, you know, we're interested in knowing those answers. And uh, if you find liquid water on Mars below the surface, well, that's going to be exciting. Right. You know, who knows what's in that water? Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, you could have life forms in that water. Uh, and that really gets people excited about it. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, you know, scientists obviously want to go and explore you know, you know, ask the questions, did life exist? Does it still exist? Uh, you know, will it ever, you know, uh, will it exist in the future? You know, and so, uh, and then, you know, if we send colonies there eventually, you know, uh, we're going to need that water to survive. For sure. Uh, we can't take everything with us. Uh, and so we have to find it there. And so you want to know, uh, is that water available to, for drinking? Uh, <laughs> I might want to put it through a Brita filter at least once or twice. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so fantastic. It's inspiring stuff. And Insight is, of course, paving the way for other future missions to Mars. Um, we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to hear more about what you, uh, what you have to say about things like the Mars Perseverance uh, project that's coming up. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. our, it's on the way. It's in space yes. on, right now as we speak. And then, uh, and then other cool stuff that's coming up from NASA. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Mars Perseverance is uh, more than halfway there. Uh, we reached the halfway point about a week ago. Nice. And uh, just so exciting. And uh, I could tell uh, the team is very uh, stressed, uh, <laughs> you know, because we have to get there. We have to make sure it gets there and, uh, and lands safely. And, uh, you know, um, all these tasks need to be done uh, getting there. Uh, but uh, we should land uh, uh, middle of February. Uh, we should be there and hopefully sitting on the surface of Mars and collecting samples. Uh, and so uh, it's, the mission is designed literally to collect. You basically go around and say, oh, that rock is interesting. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to... Uh, put it in a uh, test tube and leave it on the surface of Mars for another mission to come along to pick it up. And uh, so just a, it's very ambitious mission. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the thought that you could go and collect these samples to begin with and wait for that next mission to come along. Yes. <laughs> to go pick them up. Uh, very ambitious. Uh, but that's part of the Mars program. They, uh, they have this course plotted uh, where they have uh, missions in, in mind to go and retrieve those samples and bring it back to Earth. And uh, that's yeah, going to be close so my mind. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, a good decade or more from now, but, you know, it's going to be so exciting to do that. Um, uh, and it's just amazing when you think of it, what we could do. Uh, we're testing new technologies. Right. Uh, there's the, uh, 
we're flying in. Basically, it's a technology demonstration uh, that we could actually fly something in the Martian atmosphere. Thin as, as it is, uh, we think we could fly this helicopter uh, to, um, on the surface of Mars. And so uh, there's a, a, a helicopter called Ingenuity. And, um, you know, we'll see if it works. And uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll see if I mean, it works. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, literally it's there to demonstrate that this is possible. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm sure we're going to learn a lot of things from doing that, uh, both engineering wise and science wise. And uh, who knows what you know, the future may bring for Mars. We may be flying airplanes in the Martian atmosphere at some point in time. Uh, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Um, which reminds me, we have missions being designed going to Titan. Uh, it, uh, Titan, uh, there's a mission called Dragonfly, and Titan has this really thick atmosphere, uh, so it's very different from the Martian atmosphere. Uh, and we know that we could fly uh, helicopters and etc. in environments like the Earth. And mm -hmm. so it's like, okay, well, let's fly a quadcopter there. And uh, so <laughs> this amazing. mission is designed to have a well-equipped, scientifically equipped quadcopter that is literally designed to land on the surface, do its thing, uh, collect science samples, and then uh, lift off again, go to that next target. Uh, so can you imagine, you know, you know, uh, you know, getting those images back and saying, Hey, look at that riverbed over there. I want to fly over there and see what's in there. And then you might see a sand dune, uh, ice dune. Uh, and so <laughs> let's fly over to the ice dune and see what's over there. Uh, sam you know, collecting your samples, um, doing your measurements, uh, your, whether it's, uh, and that also has a seismometer on, by the way. Uh, you know, see if there's titan quakes. Uh, wow. Yeah, just amazing uh what we could do with this uh so uh that should be arriving in 2027 uh if things go as goes uh goes as planned that's and, a pretty yeah. spectacular program and that's a it it sounds almost like science fiction i want to hear you describe it it just it gets me excited and i i'm, I'm sure there's got to be generations of of young scientists and engineers uh, to be who hear about programs like this and it gets them uh, just, just sort of jazzed up about it, um, and uh, and and for those people, and for anybody, how can people learn more and maybe even uh, get involved uh, in in programs like this in the planetary exploration uh, programs that NASA has? Well, there's a lot of uh, things like internships that you know, if you're in college and such, uh, such uh, you can get involved with internships, uh, but the average citizen can actually get involved with actually taking part in studying data that comes back from a range of missions, telescopes, et cetera. Uh, a good example is the Juno mission. Uh, that's taking a lot of uh, images with this camera that was designed uh, with the public in mind. And so the public is actively involved with determining what they're gonna take pictures of. Uh, and studying those images that come back. And so that's one example where uh, citizen science has become a part of that mission. Uh, there's also other types of citizen science programs uh, involving an analysis of solar system data, 
it doesn't have to be images. It could be temperature data on Mars. It could be, you know, whatever data you could think of. Mm -hmm. uh, someone has a need to analyze that data. And uh, uh, programs have been designed to get the average person uh, helping out with that. Uh, it's kind of similar to the SETI uh, program, if you remember, uh, uh, where people use their home computers to help interpret SETI data. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is a little more hands-on, a little more developed, and you're actually interacting with real scientists who are interested in studying that data. And um, I, uh, there's this one really good uh, organization. It's called uh, Zooniverse.org. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of examples there uh, where you can um, uh, get involved as an average person doing science. And I cannot stress how exciting that could be. Uh, imagine, you know, if you have kids or you are a kid, uh, actually looking at real data and making discoveries, helping scientists, you know, uh, study these bodies and who knows what out there to dis be discovered. Uh, it's just such an amazing time to be doing science uh, with what we have on our phones, uh, cell phones, laptops, etc. Uh, you know, it, it's just amazing uh, time to Absolutely. be involved with science. Well, totally remarkable stuff. And I'm always inspired. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, for taking time to talk to me. I'll leave links to a lot of the awesome things uh, that we talked about today. Uh, but Dr. Scott Edgington from JPL, legendary Cassini scientist, current Mars Insight scientist, and and who knows what the future holds. Uh, Scott, thanks so much oh, for coming you on. You never know. And uh, I'm always looking out there. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to look out too. Huge thanks again to Dr. Scott Edgington for taking time out of his day to talk to me about the amazing programs that he's been part of in his career and continues to be part of and just all the awesome stuff that NASA is up to. Uh, those folks really have a good thing going on, I think. Um, I will leave links to all of those programs in the description to this video and podcast um, so that you can check it out, dive a little deeper if you'd like. Also, I will leave a link to the Patreon for this channel. That's easily the best way to support me. Um, and even a small donation makes a really big difference, makes it a lot easier for me to keep doing this stuff. I'm having a lot of fun. I hope you are too. That's all for now. Thanks for watching and explore the world responsibly. It's that